Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Excuse My Reach. I'm your host, Emma Isaac. Today, our guest is Melanie Romero, editor at Lil Libros, a bilingual children's book publisher and author of Amor de Colores and Jay is for Hanukkah. Melanie is a trilingual writer that continues to rise in the publishing world, all while juggling freelance column work and impactful narrative newsletter creation. Through her words, her editing, and her clear want to make a tangible difference, Melanie has crafted a career so impressive it should be written in a book, or at the very least, heard on a podcast. So without further ado, let's get into her story. Melanie, welcome to Excuse My Reach. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. No, thank you so much for the invitation. I am so happy to be here. And I'm excited to talk about all things editing, writing, publishing, you name it. So thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited. I think this is going to be such a great one for listeners to hear because, you know, hearing that you're an editor, an author, these are all incredibly exciting professional titles in this kind of space. I think it's it's really cool. But we want to hear about the nitty gritty. We want to hear about the backgrounds. We want to hear about the positives and the negatives. We're going to hear about it all. But to start, I would like to know from the beginning where your initial passion came from to enter into this field at all? Wow, I think we have to go back a little bit with that because if I'm at all honest, I was just such a bookworm growing up. I grew up in a household that didn't have a lot of books just because none of my family members really believed in reading, didn't really honor writing in any type of way. I was part of a very much artsy environment. My entire family was in entertainment. Um, So the arts and the culture was appreciated, but not necessarily in the sense of let's be an editor, let's be a writer, or let's inspire you to go towards that direction. And I just remember my my dad would give me an allowance of $20 every Sunday. And at the time, there used to be like this flea market in Costa Mesa um, where the OC fair takes place. And there was a man named Randy, and he had a $1 bookstore. And they were all used books. And it's not like we couldn't afford books at all. But the idea of making that a tradition every Sunday and going with my parents and picking out my favorite book, I would get like American Girl books, Lizzie McGuire (laughs) books. And I would read them in the car. Like by the time we were home, I would completely finish these books. And then in school, I was in the accelerated reading program. I was like top 10 reader. So pretty much I I literally bled books and writing and all that. Um, and it wasn't though until I reached high school where I realized that I wanted to be a writer. I think throughout my life, I wanted to use my writing skills to become a lawyer. And that's still the goal. But I think for the most part, it was in high school where I was writing. I literally would enter every writing co- um, competition that ever existed. I, I swear. Wow. And, um, and it just came to be where that's where the passion grew. And I think I really owe it to my childhood where I had the, you know, lovely opportunity to read all these books and to read across various authors and to see how editing worked. And I just loved it. And I, I didn't know truly that it could become a career until it was a little too late, I think. Um, And then by coincidence, which I'll talk about in a little bit. 
I ended up at my job with Little Libros as editor. Hearing you talk passionately about the bookstore that you would go into so often, it actually reminds me a lot of my childhood. We went to libraries all the time. My mom was huge, huge, huge into libraries. So we would go all the time. I remember I was like so excited to get my first library card. It felt like my first like true responsibility to like keep my library card, remember where it was. So I really love that story. But I would love to know too, was there a book? I mean, you talked about the Lizzie McGuire book. About all of that, but was there a book that you remember from your childhood that you feel like was so influential in shaping you? Yes, I mean I have a ton, but I think the first one that really influenced me was so. Just a little background: um, my parents are from Mexico City, and so they immigrated to the U.S. Um, with my brother at the time, who was seven, and then had my sister and I here in the U.S. So I was born in California. Um, but you know, like a lot of Latino kids, I was not raised in a household that spoke English. We spoke Spanish at home. Like there was no other language. And so it wasn't until I was pretty much in kindergarten where they said, I'm dropping off my Spanish speaking child to her first, you know, school that they're going to teach her English. And I've never had heard English in my life. And so at that point I had kind of this epiphany of, you know, if I'm truly going to become bilingual, then I really had to pay attention to how to speak English, how to write in English. And so at the same time, I was living in two different worlds. I had a Spanish speaking world at home with um, English speaking siblings, but not English speaking parents. And then I was going to school learning um, English at the time. And I also went to a bilingual immersion school to speak English and French. So I had a lot going on. And I remember the first book that I was exposed to by my mom was the Mexican version of Hansel and Gretel. And um, I remember it was such a little thin book and it was all in Spanish. And I remember like I had difficulty a little bit with some of the words because I wasn't used to some of the Spanish words. But I think the other great tradition is that I would read it with my mom at night not every night, but I did try my best to just memorize that book. And I think by the time I was seven or eight, I knew it by heart. Like you didn't even have to give me the book. Like I knew it. And so I think that's how my love for languages came out to be. But also my love for books, like truly, I I really give it all back to that one book that kind of was just a measly little thing um, that we probably bought for like $2 back in Mexico. But it was something that I cherished. And I'm always looking for that edition of the book, but I can never find it. So I always look back to that book so much. And um, thankfully, I've had so many books along the way that have guided me through, but that's the one that started it all. That's really amazing. And I love when you said that you can now just like read it front to back (laughs) in your mind without it, because I have books like that too from my childhood, that it's just, you read them so much, they're so ingrained that all of a sudden you're like, I could act this book out if I wanted to. I could now be every single character in the book if I wanted to. I love that book. So I owe it all to that one book. Well, I want to touch a bit about how you said that you didn't really realize that this could become a concrete profession until you got a little bit further along. You kind of recognized your passion. But when really was it where you decided like, okay, 
I think that an editor actually is a career. I can play this out in so many different ways. Did you find in school that you were able to translate that? Or tell me a little bit about where that initial information about the job even came from. Yeah, so for for some reason, like I said, I had mentioned briefly that I thought using my writing skills would only be beneficial for me if it came to the time of me wanting to become a lawyer. Um, I had always wanted to become a lawyer in the back of my mind. I, I truly believe that was the only way that one, I could be financially stable. And two, I didn't need to count on my parents or anyone like as sad as it is to say writing and editing aren't lucrative jobs. And so for me, I knew kind of in the back of my mind that I didn't want to do that because I knew I just wouldn't be financially stable. So for me, becoming a lawyer was the next big, uh, the next best thing, excuse me. And so with that being said, I kind of always pursued legal internships, positions, but a lot of them had writing kind of at the basis of them. And so I never realized it until I was probably at USC, um, as sad it is to say, And at USC, I had the opportunity to kind of explore these different internships. I worked for a Latin American um, indie music label. I worked um, for a lawyer back in Orange County who had me do remote work, um, but also go to the USC Law School Library to do some research. And so a lot of it had this basis of, you know, I'm using my writing skills and my editing skills But I just never knew that it's something that I wanted to pursue because in the back of my mind, I said, you know, what is lucrative about having a writing and editing job? And, you know, everyone that I talked to at USC always did the joke of like, you're going to have a couple noodles for the rest of your life. You're not going to really do anything (laughs) with it. And um, it wasn't until until I actually went to this, um, not a workshop, but they had this conference about um, the three to uh, undergrad and grad program through the English department um, known as literary editing and publishing. And so you did three years of your bachelor's program and then um, two years. So the first year would be during your senior year at USC. And then your second year of master's would technically be like your first year of master's. So it was amazing. It was eye opening. I was so into this idea of wanting to do this program, but at the same time, didn't feel like I was qualified for it. Um, And then end of the day, I got in and started that. And through that program, it kind of opened these doors of, you know, this is how publishing firms work. This is how you can submit. Um, This is what they're looking for, you know, depending on what type of genre you're writing about, or you're, or you want to edit, this is how you get your foot in the door. And that was kind of the first time that I really found out that it could be a job that I could pursue. And um, that's kind of where it changed, where I thought maybe taking a break from applying to law school and actually doing this program would be more beneficial to me. I would get that mindset. And also the one thing that kind of pushed me towards that was now law schools the first thing they're looking at is how you write and if you are a good writer. And so I think that really pushed me over the edge of wanting to do that program because I mean, why wouldn't I do something that I could 
get a master's in. And then once I applied to law school, I can pursue even further and do freelance work if that, you know, gave me the permission to with um, the time at law school. So for me, that's kind of, you know, sad to say it took me a while to discover it. But that's where I knew that I could have a career in that. You know what? I actually don't think that it took you that long to discover it at all. I think that we're so hard on ourselves when we're young. And I think I feel this way too all the time of feeling like the timeline. It's just you keep getting older and older and you don't feel like you're accomplishing enough or whatever. But it's really it's the span of three years. I think when we look back on our life, it's probably going to feel incredibly short. So I think it probably worked out perfect timing for you. But I do want to know because that was such a concrete decision for you of sort of holding off and putting it more on the back burner, knowing that you still do want to go into law possibly one day and apply to law school. Mm -hmm. Was it scary to just kind of completely alter how you thought your trajectory was going to go? Yes, I, I will be very open and say I have extreme OCD. This is not just saying this is an official diagnosis. So for me, I have always been a control freak ever since I was little. And so um, I didn't really know how much I would change my mind until I got to USC. I went in saying, I'm going to do English literature and I'm going to um, double major in uh, English literature and criminal justice. And then I'm going to double minor. Like I was very extreme. And I knew for a fact, I'm like, I'm not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change my mind. Steadfast. <laughs> right. A lot of my family members <laughs> were like, you're going to change your mind. It's okay. And, um, you know, during my time at USC, I went from English lit to English creative writing. And then I went into journalism as a double major with that. Hated it, got out of it, went into cinema and media studies. So I changed my mind a lot. And I think it truly that helped me realize that it's okay to take my time. Um, I don't have to graduate, you know, in two, three years, because I had enough credits, I could span it out to take four years. And then thankfully, with the master's program, I ended up staying at USC for an extra year. Um, And so that was great. And I think, you know, it's very hard for me to accept it still sometimes. And I think with the whole pandemic that went through where you you had so much time with yourself that you're like, am I delayed in any sense of the way compared to my roommates, compared to my classmates, compared to friends? And, you know, I was seeing so many people go into law school right away. And that broke my heart. And I was seeing, you know, a lot of people get into like their big girl jobs. And then it was me still in my master's program. Um, it was hard to accept. I, I definitely won't lie about it, but I don't regret it now. I think personally, I'm so much more comfortable with this timeline that I have. And I think I always stress myself out that I had to finish, you know, college in this amount of years. And then afterwards, I would work at this corporate job for like five years and then go on. I felt like I had everything planned. And I can definitely say, um, as a matter of fact, that I don't have anything planned. Like, I don't know how long I'm going to be in this job. I don't know um, when I'm going to go to law school. And so I think it's very much, you know, the balancing of myself with the things that I love, which are my job, um, my family, my relationships, my friendships. And so I think as of now, I'm so comfortable with where I'm at. But it's definitely at a point where you know, you have to learn to accept that it's okay 
if you don't make it in the amount of years that you want, as long as you have goals that you're pursuing, that's more than enough. And I don't think we have to give the pressure to ourselves um, to kind of reach a little bit more than we're willing to um, just take it as it goes. I, you know, life is short, but you know, it's, it's definitely not worth the pressure and the stress we put ourselves through. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think it's a great thing for people to openly say, because we're all feeling it all the time, mm-hmm. like quite, quite literally all the time. I think we feel so many similar pressures to one another. And you don't realize that somebody that you look at that you see is incredibly accomplished on your end, you could think they have it all, they got it all under control, but everyone's still growing and learning at the same time. Of course. And there, there is never any rush. I think that's truly my biggest advice is, you know, take things as they go and you're going to go with the flow. And it truly, you know, at one point or the other, you have to just give it up and let go and, you know, take your time with it. There's absolutely no rush. And I think society just makes us think differently. Absolutely. I do want to touch on, you talked about that when you were doing your master's, you had thought about doing some freelance And is that something that you started during your master's or was that the first step that you took after your master's? Talk to us about that. Yeah. I mean, I did a little bit of, this was mostly volunteering writing. Um, I did a lot of uh, programs through USC where you would just kind of write for the fun of it. I think, I mean, oh gosh, it was like Odyssey and then Spoon University, which was about being a foodie. And I remember doing those and I absolutely loved it. I love kind of the deadlines that they were giving me. And I felt like I had such a packed schedule, but it was the only time where I felt like I was writing for me and not for a class. Um, and then afterwards, I, I did a lot of editing for friends and everything, you know, they had essays and they were like, can you just like look it over? And I'm like, of course. And <laughs> so I felt like that's how the freelance work started. And then, um, yes, during my master's program, I started getting involved with just companies and kind of, you know, I wasn't being paid much. I'll be honest with you. It was definitely maybe a little more than minimum wage, but I was doing a lot in terms of writing and it was all over like fashion and sports and um like you name it and it was some things that I wasn't super comfortable with and then there were other subjects that I felt super comfortable with but it was definitely once again a balance of like I felt like I needed to do this so I can build my portfolio and not in a way to kind of throw it at for instance if I was applying to law school at law schools and saying like, look what I did. And this is how I'm padding up my resume. (laughs) It was truly just because I loved it. Like I wanted to continue writing. And I felt like the writing that I was doing in my program, not that it wasn't, you know, interesting, it just wasn't in the sense personal to me. Um, And I wanted something where I felt like, yes, I'm in a master's program, I'm doing amazing work. But also on the side, I'm writing for myself and for these amazing companies. And all that. And, you know, and through that is technically how I ended up getting my job because I was doing so much in terms of writing outside of my program. And also I was giving um, my company a little bit more of a look into me where I could multitask. I was in a program, a graduate program, but also at the same time I was writing on the side. And um, that's what companies, especially publishing, editing firms are looking for people who can 
you know, balance a lot of deadlines, who can balance personal and professional lives. And, um, you know, it, it truly got me to where I am now. That's really amazing. And after your master's program, then finish, and after a lot of this freelance work, you had started up, you mentioned that these opportunities then helped you get your current job at Los Libros. So I do want to know what were some things that you felt they were looking for in that job that you were able to fulfill? And what were some things that you were also looking for in a company to be able to work for that they were able to fulfill for you? So when I was doing my job search, I didn't do it after I graduated. I actually was doing it um, during my first year of that master's program. And the reason why is they, um, USC actually requested for all students in that program to get an internship for their second year. Um, with it. it didn't have to be in editing or publishing, but it did have to have like a writing basis. Um, so you could practically get any internship you wanted. Uh, but they did encourage you to apply to publishing and editing firms because obviously by the name of the program, that is what they're known for. And they wanted their students to pursue those types of opportunities. And so it was in the midst of the pandemic, I honestly did not think I was going to find an internship because of a lot of internship programs closed down. They weren't taking any interns. And so um, I received an email from the department. They said, well, you know, just for your information, you need to have an internship by the time you start, which was two months away at that point. And I was freaking out. And once again, the OCD kicked in and I cold called every known editing and publishing firm <laughs> in California. I was like, I'm willing to do remote work, etc. No one, I think like two people got packed to me and like no one else was responding. I got ghosted so many times. And, um, and with that being said, it was through my mom who she is, you know, um, a Spanish speaker. She loves her. Univision, which is a Spanish language um, channel. And she was like, there, there's a bilingual company for children's books. It's called something like little, I don't know. And I was like, okay, mom, like, and she's like, no, you've heard of it. We've seen them in Target. And I was like, okay. Um, and I just remember that night I went on and I like did my research and I couldn't find an email on their website. So I was like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> and so by coincidence, and I tell this every, I did not get this job because they were looking for someone openly. I got this job truthfully by luck, by coincidence. Um, I couldn't find that email address on their website. And so I actually went on their Facebook and sent them a Facebook message, which is not, very, which is something I don't recommend anyone to do. Okay. But I literally was no, like, I love email. that. <laughs> like, I love that so much. I'm like, your email address <laughs> is not on your website, or maybe I'm too <laughs> blind to actually realize that it's on there. I, you know, I'm super, super nervous. I'm stressed out. I'm looking for internship opportunities. And then I felt that if I did that in my elevator pitch of just putting internship opportunities, it would seem like I was a little too desperate. So I was like, oh, internship opportunities and, you know, any employment opportunities that you know, are open, I'm willing to apply for. Um, they responded right away, gave me an email address and said, you know, send us your resume. I think I sent my resume like 2am um, that same day. 
and was like, I'm, I'm going to get this internship. Um, and they got back to me and said, we have an opening for employment for assistant editor, if you're interested. So if you are, you know, let us know, we're happy to schedule the interview. Next thing I know next week, talk to the two co-founders. And then two days later, I believe I talked to um, the editor, the senior editor at the time. So it was truthfully all by coincidence. Um, that week, I think the next day I ended up getting the job after like that second interview. And, um, you know, I started with a grace period and then it became a full, a part-time job and then a full-time job. And then now I'm editor. But um, I wanted to to talk about the story because I think a lot of people assume that, you know, I I went through extreme lengths to get this job. But truthfully, it was completely by coincidence. I just drop called everyone I knew and I was solely searching for an internship. And so um, if you ask anyone in my master's program, they'll tell you that my one request and any company that I could work for was it was it for it to be a bilingual English Spanish company. I said that I was like, if I can wow. practice both languages, I am happy. And my professor told me, he was like, I'm going to be so honest with you. That is a, he's like, not that it's impossible. Like, I'm pretty sure there are companies out there, but he's like, sadly, you know, those companies aren't represented well because obviously a lot of the bigger known, you know, top five publishing companies are, you know, taking over. And so you just have to yeah. be very, very um, selective with those um, publishing firms that you do find because they're very, very hard to find. And he's like, it's not impossible, but you have to do your work. And I remember I was just like, I'm never going to find that type of job, whether it be in publishing and editing and business, whatever it could be. And I just felt like I was betraying my own two cultures if I didn't find that job. And, you know, once again, coincidentally, I found it. And that was my one request that and for me to somehow give back to my community. Um, and so by doing so and in it being dual language, I think that that's me giving back because I was you know, I'm like, if anything, like I want a job here in California or a job in Mexico. And I feel like I got both because I'm representing both cultures. And I do travel frequently to Mexico. And um, I'm there sometimes not on business, but for pleasure, but still like I'm doing all my editing jobs of going to libraries and bookstores. And um, with, you know, little libros that even though they never like explicitly told me like I'm looking for this. Um, I think what they were looking for was truthfully someone that was very outspoken about their culture. Um, you know, it wasn't necessary that I spoke fluent Spanish, but I think that it was a plus when they were like, Oh my gosh, you know, you speak this language and you're also very comfortable being American. And so Mexican American. And then at the same time, um, you know, a one thing that is true about ed the editing world is that it's super, super, um, I guess, very selective when it comes to age. And usually we hear that in business, they prefer like younger individuals in business because, you know, they're, they're kind of fighting their way against older individuals who've been in the business for 20, 40 years, but they want like fresh yeah. meat. And in editing, it's completely different. They want the experience. They want someone who might be so much older, but has worked on um, so many editing firms and has done this amount of books and has written this and all this. And so coming in, I always felt like I was living through imposter system because I'm like, I, 
at the time I got the job, I think I was about 22. Yeah, 22. And I was like, I'm not fit to be here because I am too young. I don't have the experience that a lot of these editors have who have, you know, worked for the biggest, you know, top five publishers for 20 plus years. And then here's me freshly graduated, um, kind of entry level. And I think they just really latched onto that hope of like, we'll give you a chance, just don't let us down. Um, and you know, it's been so great. And I've grown with them. We we truly have made the company go from a very selective amount of books to over 70 books, which is a lot. And I think we're also 100% Latina run. Our two co-founders are Latina. Um, and also, I think we're about 95% completely Latinos working um, at the office. Um, and the same, I think, percentage of women in the office. Um, so it's been great. I think it's so good to be part of something that's female led, something that is, you know, the initiative is to have little ones um, immerse themselves into cultures um, and into languages. And I couldn't have asked for anything better. It's my childhood dream to go into this type of job. And, you know, coincidentally, you know, everything that I did, no matter whether it was writing related or not, it got me to where I needed to be. I think it was obviously so kismet what happened. Like, and I think you, you talk about it in the sense of you feel so lucky and you feel like you didn't do a ton beforehand, but yes, you did. You were completing a master's program. You did many, many, many freelance jobs. You kept up with your bilingual culture in the sense that you were Mm -hmm. your your passion and your vision for your career was to implement both cultures in one place you know so I think that you don't give yourself enough credit and you're right about the imposter syndrome because what I'm hearing from everything before you got to that job is you actually worked your butt off to get to that job so even though I hear what you're saying that it is a predominantly dominated industry by people that are older and perhaps more experienced I think that what you're saying and how you got there is actually incredibly useful information for people to hear because even though it may not be the norm to get to your position at the age that you got there, it's still obviously a possibility. And the way to do it mm -hmm. is to be intentional about it, maybe be specific about it, and then also do a lot of that work outside of the work that you're supposed to be doing, quote unquote. So I think you formulated a really perfect path thus far. And it's really incredible what you have been able to do. So don't sell yourself short there at all. No, I appreciate it. I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. It is the imposter, uh, the imposter syndrome, excuse me. Um, I think it's, it's truly, you know, I, I felt this with a lot of my classmates in that same program where we do sell ourselves short. And, um, you know, but honestly, like, I don't think I would have gotten where I am without that program. I love that program to death. I think it was an amazing program in the sense of the amount of camaraderie I felt with all my classmates who were in the same boat. You know, it it is a scary industry. It's a very cutthroat industry. And, um, you know, I think we often put editors and writers in a very romantic, glittering position of, you know, um, we see like, for instance, like Miranda Priestley as a fashion editor, and then we see Carrie Bradshaw as like this writer. And then 
you know, we think that they live very fashionable, amazing lives. And, you know, in, in reality, they do. Like, it's an amazing job that they're pursuing. But um, it's definitely not like that. You know, a lot of my job, you know, I, and I, I'll be very honest, I still, you know, live at home, I work remotely. Um, I'm pretty much still in that post pandemic um, environment in the sense um but I do love my job and I love it so much. But I think um, with deadlines and the types of projects we have to do and the amount of juggling we have with all across all projects, you know, there's some very dark days where, you know, it's sometimes it's a lot of pressure that you're putting on yourself. And, you know, now I have an assistant who helps me with that load and I love her to death. But, you know, I do see that, you know, sometimes it, it there's a fear of burning out and, I I truthfully think that as beautiful as, you know, occupations may go, your job holds so much light for you. Uh, At the same time, it can be a very, very dark place. And so I, I definitely would just say that we have to be very transparent with the amount of um, the, the cutthroat environment that, you know, publishing and editing and writing is. And I think, I see it now, but, um, you know, I, I've juggled it and I've gone through it. And I think it's just like we can't, you know, just be blinded by the beauty and by the romantic nature of this job. I think there's so much more to it. But, um, you know, there's definitely better days than there are dark days. But um, it's definitely also, you know, that that openness of like we have to do that research um, for ourselves and to take care of ourselves. And so there, there's so much more um, to this industry and I'm hoping we're going towards that pathway where we're more transparent um, and we're more open with mental health and um, of not putting that much pressure on ourselves um, when it can wait a day or two. Absolutely. And I would love to get more into that nitty gritty Mm -hmm. of the job. If you could kind of walk us through a day to day and strip it down, like tell us the good parts, tell us the bad parts, tell us all of it. Of course. So my day to day does tend to change. But about weekly, I do have um, a production meeting weekly. And that is with the designer that we have in our team. Um, our two co-founders, my assistant and myself. Um, And then as well, I have um, an editorial meeting and that's just with our two co-founders and my assistant. So this is where we talk about, you know, all the ideas that we have for editorial, what type of books we want to create. Um, And so we have those, uh, the editorial meeting is twice a week and then the production meeting once a week. Um, And then, but usually my day-to-day begins at 8, 8.30 um, I try to get to the computer quite early. Um, sometimes I'll start answering emails while I'm at the gym and then I'll come home and actually do some work. Um, but a lot of it is just emails, you know, from artists that we already have on our roster, you know, requesting to see any sneak peeks of um, the book they wrote that just got finished with illustrations. Um, we have some emails from our printers in China who are sending us PDF proofs. Um, and then we have, you know, the typical emails that are more submissions based. So there, um, there are a lot of individuals sending us submissions um, on the daily. So we probably get about 20 submissions, um, more or less a day. And so I look through all those emails, I try to answer them all by noon. Um, and in between, we have meetings with artists who either are interested in joining, 
Um, so they've already submitted and we already sent them, you know, an email saying, we really love what you submitted. Let's talk it through. And so this is kind of not, it's like pre-negotiations. Um, and then after that, you know, it's, it's lunch and then you come back and it's pretty much, you know, end of the day. So for the last like four hours, you're once again, answering emails, you're looking over proofs. Um, if we have the physical copies of the books, we're going over them to make sure there's no errors. So that's text and illustrations. Um, and so we have a lot of things like that on the daily. Um, you know, we, we do meet with a lot of artists and agencies. It's kind of spread out over the month. And then we also have a distributor. And so the distributor is the one who handles our biggest orders. So if someone, say for instance, one of our um, retailers is amazingly Whole Foods, so Whole Foods will reach out to our distributor and say, hey, I want, you know, 10,000 books um, by the end of this month. Um, our distributor will manage that order, will let us know, like, Whole Foods is interested in picking up 10,000 books. Do you have any in stock? Um, and if we don't have any in stock, sometimes our distributor has them in their warehouse. And if not, we order them um, from the printer. And so they deliver it to us. And so it's a lot of like back and forth, but the good thing is that our distributor is kind of our guiding support as we go through. Um, we are a very small company. We're under 20 employees. So it's typically, we do a lot of the heavy lifting, like apart from me being editor, I'm also going over as, you know, like illustrating um, expert <laughs> because sometimes I have to look at illustrations and I know I'm like, yeah. that's not the color for the book. Um, so we take on a lot of hats and, um, you know, I deal with a lot of contracts. I send out the contracts to um, all the artists. Um, I work with our lawyer hand in hand to make sure, you know, what is this contract saying? What can I go back um, to the artist and say? So it's a lot of also negotiating that I, I take a part of. And um, I also handle um, not payments, but I also handle to make sure that, you know, those payments are in a lineup for our accountant to make sure that all our artists are paid on time. They've turned in um, their items, all that. So it's pretty much, it, it tends to change. It's every day, it's a different day. But for the most part, I, I do a lot of that. It is a little bit more nitty gritty with administration work. Uh, but there's much more fun days where, you know, you get those proofs from China and you get to see how the book looks like. And then if we're in person, I get to go to the office and actually like, physically touch the book, go over it in detail with my teammates. And, um, you know, if we need to change anything, we have to let the printer know that we're changing some text or uh, some color and we're getting back to the illustrator um, to make those changes before we can send them an updated version. And so it's a lot. It, it truly changes. But um, for the most part, I'm, you know, as much as I love my, my teammates, our um, offices in L.A., I love being at home. I think it's also a good way to um, kind of break the professional and personal life that I hold. Um, but it's a good way to also, you know, um, I'm very, very on top of it with emails. And so I, you know, shouldn't be doing this all the time, but sometimes I will respond to an email late because artists are very intimate. They're very sensitive people. And so I always want to make sure that I can get an answer to them and that they're happy with how their book is looking. Um, and so that is always my um, kind of rule to myself of like always answer an artist when you can, because, you know, as equally as excited as you are to see the book in real life, 
they're waiting to get it. And so if I can just give them that calm of your book looks amazing. Um, I'm so excited for the next book, hopefully that you'll have with us. That gives me kind of more energy um, to get through my day to make sure that, you know, they're happy with, with the book that's going out in the world for, you know, hopefully thousands to see. That's really incredible. And I'm sure that you have some of that sympathy too, because you yourself are also an author. And I want to get into that because that is just like a whole nother sector of your life that I feel like is so exciting. And it seems like it kind of fits seamlessly into your professional world at Little Libros. So I want to know, because I saw that they are your publisher, correct? When you came to this company, did you at all have the intention of publishing there or even becoming an author? Tell us about that. No, never. I a lot of the freelance work that I did in terms of writing was with like blogs. Um, so one of my favorite blogs is Alma, which is um, a Jewish leaning blog. And it's an amazing blog to follow. They're so into like pop culture and, you know, everything Jewish. And I was so excited um, to write for them like all the time. So A lot of my freelance work came from them. And then apart from that, I had other uh, blogs that I was writing for. And so pretty much I was blog centered. Like I was like, oh, you know, I'm writing articles, you know, here and there. But now that I'm at Little Libros, you know, I have to take on this part of assistant editor at the time. Um, And at the time, like I never imagined, first of all, to work at a children's book publisher. Um, I, I knew that if I went into publishing, I wanted to go into young adult or adult books, um, more in the line of like fictional books. So it was, it was tough because I was like, you know, first of all, I'm at the time I was 22 when I was starting, I had no kids. So I was like, I, there's no young people really in my family. And so I was like, how do I go into that industry when I myself don't have that experience of, you know, being a parent um, raising a kid to be bilingual, etc. And so I think that was a scary part. And so I kind of knew that as much as I love the company, you know, I, I felt like I wasn't fit to be a children's book assistant editor at the time. And so I was like, Oh, my gosh, it's, it's a very hard territory, because you have to be very, very, um, per- like, particular with what you're publishing, because with kids, you know, you have to take everything in consideration, make sure nothing is, you know, um, a double entendre and make sure you know, <laughs> nothing is taken out of context. So it, it's truly very a hard job. And I always tell people like, you have to watch out every you have to look up every <laughs> word in the book, um, English and Spanish, because you have to make sure what that translation is. And sometimes you don't mean it that way, but it, it gets yeah. taken out of context. So I was very scared. And so um, that's why I felt like with working at Little Libros, I was truthfully just there to be part of what an assistant editor does. And I was like, okay. And then keeping my professional writing life separate. Um, And so with the first book, which was Amor de Colores, I did not have that idea per se. I I did come up with idea, but the original idea came from a book that Little Libros published called De Colores. It is a famous nursery rhyme song um, in Mexico, and I think we could say also in Latin America. And um, 
my mom used to sing me that song. Like it was a nursery rhyme that everyone knows. Me too. And so, right? yeah. so my like, mom okay. used to sing it to me too. <laughs> and so the book is called Singing Cantando Amor, uh, excuse me, Singing Cantando de Colores, excuse me. And um, you open up the book and it gives you both lyrics. So it's the original um, Spanish lyrics. And then the English lyrics are personally translated by my two co-founders, Patty and Ariana. And so it's a beautiful book. Illustrations were so cute, but they're like, you know, we want to start making in-house books um, from illustrations that we already have. And so I was like, okay, like I'm looking through them. And so one of them was, you know, and Patty, my co-founder was like, maybe we should do a book um, about love and about the colors. And I was like, okay, like, how can we take that? So sometimes as assistant editor and sometimes as editor, you have to do a lot of the research. You sometimes will come up with sample manuscripts. So I came up with a manuscript and it was very, I guess, like simple. It was just taking things that we loved around us um, and kind of associating it to that color. And then they loved it and they were like, okay, keep pursuing this idea. You know, where, where can we take it from there? So there were a lot of changes for the objects that, um, you know, I picked and, all that I think for the first one from what I remember like hearts for red which is like such a simple thing that anyone can come up with so I was like okay and then we changed it and then it came to the part where instead of hearts it's a pan dulce that's very traditional in Mexican culture um that's called a rap baby niño envuelto and so I was like oh like that double entendre of like that's really (laughs) cute of like a little baby that's wrapped and so we kept doing that and doing that and it was you know, we came up and then we added in colors that aren't associated to the rainbow. So we had like brown, we had black, we had white. Um, and then at the end, it's about loving the colors around you and loving the people around you. And um, what color is your love today? So knowing that your emotions and your love of colors can change at any day and they don't have to stay at the same one. So that's how Amor de Colores came to be. And I remember I was, you know, I wasn't, I didn't even know that I was writing the manuscript. And then um, Patty was like, Melanie, like, this is your first book. It's going to have your name on it. And I was like, okay. Like, I was like, whatever. (laughs) And then you're like, I guess I'm an author now. Yeah. And it dawned on me later. I was like, oh my gosh. And so, so many good things have come from that book. And I think, you know, I've had the pleasure of doing book signings and, you know, even doing a book signing at USC, which was like, immense for me when I did um the LA Festival of Books and it was amazing and you know I I never imagined it to be with little libros in the sense that like it just never dawned to me to write a children's book to write a book at all and I thought if I I was writing a book I'd be you know in my early 40s writing it as I had (laughs) like kids running in the back and then I was just like okay and now it was just like I wrote one and it was an insane, insane, you know, feeling afterwards, you know, it took me a little while, but um, with Amor de Colores, then, you know, came another more personal book that I wanted to write, which was um, J.S. for Hanukkah. I would see a lot of books out there that just celebrated Christmas. And, um, you know, I come from two sides of the family that celebrates both. And so, it was good to have J's for Hanukkah as being, you know, my love letter to the community that isn't talked about, about sometimes being Latino and sometimes being Jewish. And, you know, sometimes it's a, a mold that um, a lot of people kind of oversee. And so I, um, I wanted to give back to that. And also in the sense of like, anyone can pick up that book. You don't have to have 
at all any relation to any of those cultures. It's only that sense of cultural awareness you want to raise um, to little ones. And that experience with the book has, I think, so far been the greatest. Um, When I did that book signing at USC, there was a lot of parents coming up to me saying, like, I'm Mexican and I'm Jewish. And then my parents were born in Mexico City and I was born in that same cultural center. And then, you know, hearing about like, uh, there was a little boy who was half Filipino and half Jewish. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, you don't necessarily have to belong to both cultures. You can belong to one or the other or none. And, you know, I hope that book makes an impact. And um, it was just such an amazing feeling. I want to say that even for people that are not kids, that are both Mexican and Jewish, like myself, it did make an impact for me. Because you're so right that so many children's books, they don't extend to all cultures, they don't extend to all religions, whatever it may be. And I think that's amazing that you created this thing that also Jay is for Hanukkah is like the best title of all time. (laughs) I was thinking about it the other day and I'm like, it's actually such a great title. How did you come up with this title? Actually, I did it. And this is the crazy part. Once again, I'm taking credit for someone else. So so as assistant editor, um, I was sitting in in this virtual conference about the different books that were being released. Um, and all of a sudden, someone, I think it was D is for Dreidel was the book that was coming out at the time. And I was like, oh, that's such a good like title. And then there were other books in that collection, which was like, I don't know, M is for blank. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, like, how do people come up with this? <laughs> and my senior editor at the time, um, she's no longer working at the company. Her name is Conchetta. She goes, oh my gosh, Melanie. She's like, we should do a holiday book. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like I've, I've always wanted to do a Hanukkah book, but I don't know how to get around that. And she goes, what about, I don't know, like what's the, the word for Hanukkah in Spanish? And I was like, oh, it's Hanukkah. And she's like, what about J's for Hanukkah? And I was like, it was the most like simple conversation that I had. And I was like, wow, like how did no one think of it? And it just, it stuck like at no point during the process did anyone like my co-founders, my senior editor, anyone decide to change the title. Like the entire no, time it was that title. And so it just it just came to be and it everything fell into place during that virtual conference. And I wrote that manuscript during the conference and I was like, I'm done. I was like, I only need two <laughs> words that I couldn't find. But other than that, the manuscript is done. And I think it was honestly quicker than Amor de Colores that I wrote that manuscript. Um, but I was like, if I, you know, can get behind any book I have ever published before, it would be that one. I think it just, not that Amor de Colores doesn't have that same depth. It honestly has that same love. Yeah. But I felt like J.S. for Hanukkah was, you know, that love letter. That That's what I wanted to, you know, showcase to my community. And I was like, you know, I, I belong to both communities. Not necessarily anyone else has to. But I'm like, if I can just give something back, that's what I want to give back. And, um, you know, it was it was so much love for that book. And thankfully, my team was very much behind me and was like, this is so special. And, you know, every year we have little Hanukkah parties and it's great. Like, I just feel like it's something that I get to share and that we all get to be together um, to celebrate. And so it that book really, really, I felt like brought me closer to that desire of me wanting to continue to write and hopefully more children's books. 
That's amazing. And I mean, I personally thank you for writing it. I think it's just, it's a a really, really great one, seriously. But you know what? I actually, I wanted to know because in these books, like what people that may not have read them or seen these books, they have both the translation, like they have the English and they have the Spanish side by side. So I have actually have two questions regarding that. One, do you do all of the translations yourself? And then two, for words that, because the Spanish language, there are words that sometimes yes. like in Mexican Spanish may be different than Spain Spanish. So is mm-hmm. there a standard that you guys stick to in the publishing world of which Spanish you use? Yes. So for us, so to answer the first question, yes, our our books are in both languages. So English and Spanish. The translation, I if it's, I feel comfortable with the board books, mostly because the board books are smaller. They're meant for zero to five usually. Um, and so it's usually just phrases or usually just like single words. And so I feel comfortable doing that translation. And then we'll have a proofreader check it. And then they'll say like, oh, actually a better word to use is this, mm-hmm. etc." With the hard covers, which are you know, plot driven narratives, usually it's so hard because sometimes with dialogue, our dialogue is so different from English to Spanish because they use different quotation marks. You'll see sometimes they'll use like regular English quotation marks. Sometimes they'll use the rayas, which are the lines. And then um, other times they use like the little um, like side V's. And it, it's mm-hmm. just sometimes I'm like, it, it throws me off. So I <laughs> don't feel as confident. And so usually I can translate some of the language, but then I'll translate it. And I'm like, you know, to the proofreader, please destroy it. Like destroy the language <laughs> that I translated. Go ahead, you know, whatever you recommend, because obviously I I didn't study, you know, translation or anything like right. that. So I'm like, I, I feel much more comfortable if they were to do it. Um, And so, yes, and sometimes we have an in-house translator. She does our board books usually. She's actually one of our teammates and she actually studied it. So it's always good to see that she translates it as well and we keep it in-house. But sometimes for the bigger books that, you know, will take up more time, we have um, an acquired um, proofreader come in and double check everything. And we usually use them twice. Once when the manuscript is finished and once more once the manuscript um, has turned into a full book so illustrations included and then they'll go over it and um you know retranslate if they need it um because sometimes text changes so that's the first question the second question um is now i completely have forgotten what you just mentioned (laughs) you're good the second (laughs) question is because there are so many not i mean there are quite a few actually so many different words in spanish that sometimes will be different between mexican spanish speakers and spanish speakers from spain and spanish speakers from everywhere else is there a is there a standard that you guys stick to or does it kind of just depend on what sounds best for the book I think in terms of the standard for publishing if you're just doing english they have I be, I can't I don't know the entire name but it's um a specific Spanish that you have to use um okay. through this like academy and this academy approves like all Spanish and tells you what's it. you know best to use and for what situation um however for us um both of my co- uh, co-founders are Mexican American um they were raised in Linwood um and so for them you know they really do want to kind of build off the Latino American experience within, you know, the United States. And 
Um, you know, I think coming from their positions where they grew up, you know, in a, a Mexican household, um, I think it's more the norm for them to use, um, you know, Spanish that is from Latin America. Um, obviously, it changes from country to country. So we have a book on our roster that's called Jefferson, actually. And that was actually written by an acquired author who is Salvadorian. And so for her, she was like, you know, I love what the proofreader did, but like, that's not how my family talks at the dinner table. And so she was like, if you can just change the dialogue to represent more of my culture, that, you know, that would be great. It would be more me than, you know, how it is now. And so we take that very close into consideration because we're like, obviously we want to represent something that the author is happy with. We don't want to publish a book that they're not happy with. And so we'll take that, I think, case by case, but mostly, you know, we want to emphasize what it means to be Latino. And I think being Latino, we use that Latin American Spanish more than anything. I think, you know, sometimes um, they'll say at the forefront, it's like Mexican Spanish, um, which is not what we aim to do. Like, obviously, I think it coming from me who is Mexican, you know, I think it's more normal if I translate it for it to be Mexican Spanish. But that's why, you know, we have little opportunities where if someone is from a different culture, you know, we want to use the language that they're comfortable with. And, you know, probably they don't say certain words the way we do, but it's something they say at home. And if it's a book that's representing that culture, why wouldn't we use those little um, words to depict that? And so that's how we, we use it. And I think it, you know, it completely depends on um, the publisher, but I know a lot tend to use that Academy suggestion of Spanish um, which is not wrong, but it's definitely more of like a formal way of the Spanish language. And, you know, for us, it, it's definitely based on experience and what the author wants. And um, so we take it kind of case by case. Well, I think that's great. And I think it also kind of gives hopefully children who are reading these books and parents who are probably reading these books with them the opportunity to learn maybe a new word in or a language that they thought that they knew perfectly in their own way, you know? So I think that's actually really amazing that you guys kind of cater to that. I want to give some accolades here, okay? Because both of your books have done very, very well. Amor de Colores, it was awarded Chicago Public Library's Best of the Best Picture Books of 2022. And Jay is for Hanukkah reached number one new release in children's Jewish holiday books a day before it was released. That's huge. First of all, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Lapping you. into the mic right now. Hopefully that wasn't too loud. <laughs> but I just want to say, because it's obviously incredible what you've been able to do with these books, what you've been able to do as an editor at this company and how you're really pushing your mission forward. What is the support been like in your closest circles within your family, your friends? What has that been like? It's been unreal. I think I to just give you a little bit of background, you know, I think even though I was definitely like that bookworm growing up and a lot of people who surrounded me always said like, you're going to be a writer one day. Um, I felt like I never had that support for my parents. And I don't mean it in a bad way. I mean it in the sense of coming from a Mexican household where, you know, the only occupations you could be would be doctor or lawyer. I think 
my parents never understood what I studied when I'd say like, oh, I'm studying English for them. It's like, well, you already know the language. Who are you going to teach it to? <laughs> and I'm like, that's not what I'm studying. You know, like I'm, I'm studying literature, yeah. I'm studying creative writing. And for them, like, like, there's so much more to it. Exactly. And they never understood it. And I mean, I don't blame them. I think it's also, you know, lack of education on their end. They, they didn't go, get to go to school and you know, they, they were successful in their own way, but I think for them, you know, they never had to worry about an education. And so now where we are now, I think, you know, my mom finally understands like what I'm doing. My mom is probably my number one supporter. Um, you know, she tells everyone like my daughter wrote a book and I'm like, mom, stop, like, don't tell that uh, to everyone you meet. But I think like, it's really endearing to see how much that transition has been for her. Because going from someone who was like, oh, she's always reading, you know, like find a new hobby to all of a sudden, like you wrote your first book. I'm so proud of you. And I mean, that that love and I feel encouragement and support has also been seen in my closest circle of friends, of even people that I necessarily have not met before, but from afar that they've been following me in the sense you know, of, of supporting me through friends, because my friends recommended them the book. And um, like my master's program, my cohort has been nothing but supportive. Like I, I always have felt that support and like that energy and that excitement. Um, and then, you know, one of my classmates in that cohort actually told her mom, I wrote a book, and then her mom told the company she worked at. And then one dad who has a daughter, um, she was like obsessed with the book. She wanted that book to be read every night at bedtime. And oh. we always never met. Like we, oh, like they couldn't come to one event. Um, and I was like, oh, it's okay. And then I got to meet them at the most recent festival of books. And it was just so heartwarming because like my friend from my um, cohort came first with her sister who bought the book and then her mom who also bought the book. And then behind them was the family of like their coworkers. They just didn't know we've never met before. And it was just that feeling of like community of like, finally, like I got to meet people who are very excited for it. And um, I just, I felt like that's what I needed. And I think at a time where, you know, I think the pandemic changed a lot of things. And so we were, inside for a while and we didn't really have that support and now finally you know things have gone back to normal as much as possible and it's been good to finally go out and get to meet all these people who have been very very supportive and whether they know me or they don't I think that has just been great and getting to know everyone along the way has been amazing but I've definitely seen how my family has transitioned from like that very closed-minded mentality of like uh, the bookworm. And now all of a sudden, you know, they're so happy with the book, they tell everyone. And then my friends who were like, uh, you know, we we didn't expect anything less. And then, um, yeah. you know, a close friend of mine, his name is Carlos. He works at USC. And he took me to his office, I think, like two months ago. And he had my book up there. And I was like, you don't have oh to gosh. do that. And he was just like, <laughs> no, like, I'm so proud. And so I think just those little moments, those little things, have really, really made me feel so grateful um, to be in the position that I am and to feel like I finally, not finally have a purpose, but I feel like that purpose that I've wanted all along is finally at the forefront of what I'm doing. 
Well, thank you for sharing those. And I asked that question after the accolades because I think that sometimes we think of those and we see those and we're so impressed by those. But having your friend keep your book up at mm-hmm. their office or having your mom be insanely proud of you after maybe doubting something that you're doing. I think little things like that are just as, if not more impactful for somebody once they've reached this kind of oh, point yeah. in their career where they feel so proud of themselves for what they're doing. So I think it's great to hear all sides of that coin. What does Little Libros think now? Do they want you to write another book? They're like, we've had two hits from you. We need you to do another. I mean, they're, they're always supportive. I think for the most part, like I, I always come with ideas, not with the intention of writing them ever. It's usually like, I saw this at Barnes and Noble and I think it would be, you know, a cute idea to pursue something similar or to do this. So I think there's always a chance. I feel like they definitely have kept that door wide open for me. Um, You know, it's, it's a company that encourages you rather than belittles you. And I think it's something that I want in my life because I, I tell everyone, I don't think I'll ever leave this job in like the next decade. And um, I'm not kidding. Like I, even though I have different pursuits sometimes and I want to follow through with other things like law school, you know, they have been highly encouraging of that as well. And I think for the most part, um, they're always encouraging me, you know, to do my own thing and to keep writing. And I know for instance, like if I do come up with another idea, I know it'll be met with gratitude and support rather than just, you know, denial or, um, rejection and I think if anything you know even though you write what people consider best-selling books you know sometimes the next book isn't as great as it could be but the good thing about Little Libros is that they take you from one place to another and that other place is somewhere higher and so I know that whatever I come to them with they'll take me to where they see the book going. And um, it has never been backwards, but always been forwards. And so hopefully a next book could be on the horizon. So I'm really, really hoping for that. That'd be awesome. I want another one from you. Positive progression <laughs> forward. Come on, let yes. her write another one. But I, for anybody out there that is kind of also trying to either they're already at a publishing house, they're trying to get into publishing mm-hmm. and also want to be an author, whatever you are able to share for this, but how does the kind of back end work of if you are an author at the same place that you publish at, do you get proceeds from your own book? Is it kind of just like rolled into your salary? I just like love for people to hear kind of what that would be like. So sometimes it it completely depends on how um, that's built. So it it completely depends on your contract with the company. Um, In my case, I didn't really know how to go about it because like I said, I wasn't thinking of publishing a children's book at all and didn't have that intention of doing so while I had the job. Um, But yes. So what they usually what a publishing firm will do is that they will draft up a separate contract to what you were hired with. So in this case, if you know, there's not a clause in your original contract that says, you know, if she ever decides to publish a book, it'll be as, you know, um, going hand in hand with her salary. So almost like a bonus in a sense, or um, maybe she's going to receive like separate royalties because with publishing, you get an advance and then you have to pay off your advance first. 
And then the royalties um, will start once that advance has been paid off. So if there's not a clause in that original contract and your company wants to make sure that you receive payment out of this project, then they will draft up a new contract and then put multiple options on the table. Will there offer you one option, which will be like, you'll be receiving this, you know, chunk of money, depending on how many Mm -hmm. uh, net copies are sold at the end of the year, almost as a bonus, or you will be receiving um, royalties. I think it's semi-annually. So twice a year, you'll be receiving royalties depending on how many books are sold, but you'll only receive the royalties if the advance has been completely paid off. So that's just how it would be, I think, in any publisher. Um, they mm-hmm. would give you either the option or they present you one option. Um, and then apart from that, you know, you have to make sure that um, they'll give you like an NDA and all that and all that fun stuff. But that's how they'll present it. And then usually it's presented that way, even if it's a publisher you don't work with. So if you're just looking for a publisher and they accept your book, they will usually have that contract process as well. Um, usually you'll be offered an advance and then you'll get royalties. So it's completely dependent on the situation. Every publishing house does it differently. Um, But in my case, it was something that was already part of my salary where it wasn't something that's royalty driven, um, which has been great. Um, Either way, like I always tell people, you know, you should be paid for your work, never do anything for free. But In my case, I didn't write the book with the intention of, you know, receiving anything from it. I truthfully wanted that book to be out there. So for me, it wasn't sadly, like, as a lot of people would say, it's all about the money. It wasn't about the money for me. But you know, it's great to have that like little bonus hit at the end um, of the year when it kind of like all adds up. And then that's what you get. And then it's determined by like a percentage. I don't know what the percentage is. Um, But it's been great. It, It definitely is not like, through the roof but um for the most part it's just something that's like okay like just an extra little bit to my salary that i already make um and it's just like a little bonus in time for the holidays so i think that's always good um but yeah that's how it worked out for me i think it just completely depended on the publisher no that's really amazing information to have and if you were to eventually write within the genre that you initially thought that you were going to write Mm -hmm. in Do you see yourself doing that anytime soon? Or do you think that that's kind of just like a future Mel project? Like maybe she'll go into young adult fiction. I do think it's in the cards. I don't think necessarily as of, you know, the next maybe five, 10 years, I don't think it's within that genre that I want to write in. And the reason that I say this is because I fully intend to apply to law school. I'm actually, I finished applying, um, And it wasn't where I wanted to be. So I'm thinking of reapplying this year. So um, I will be attending a law school fall 2024. Um, So right now I feel like that little time of my life will be very much pressure and stress. And I I don't think I'll have time to write a book. Oh, yeah, you'll be busy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, I don't think I'll have time to write. But I think, you know, looking forward to it in the future, I think hopefully maybe in the next decade. And hopefully, you know, within young adult or just adult fiction books would be great. Um, But I don't know. I have my heart set on it. I just don't have a timeline for it. Well, like we previously discussed, there doesn't need to be a timeline. Exactly. We have a ton of time. All the time. So we're 
all good there. And with that extra time, the very little extra time that you have, I know you're going to be going to law school. You have a full-time job. You are an author. But are there any other projects that you're working on? Like I saw on your LinkedIn, Global Women's Narratives Project. I don't know if you want to touch on that a little bit. I would love to know kind of of what that is, what you do for them. Because from the little bit that I read on LinkedIn, it sounds amazing. Thank you. Yes, I I love working on this project. And so it's part of an organization um, through the University of Oxford. So it was previously um, under the jurisdiction of USC and the University of Oxford, but that changed about a year ago. And so I came into the project, I think, probably after my first year of my master's program. So um, I had done some research um, on the troubles in Northern Ireland. So they took place um, end of the 60s and went on to the 90s. And so it was um, an amazing opportunity to kind of research this conflict that a lot of people didn't know about. Uh, But researching it in the sense of looking into how women were affected by this global conflict. Um, And so I did a lot of research in that. I was always interested in Northern Ireland. I don't know why, how it came up, but I was like, I'm going to pursue this research. Um, And so I went to Northern Ireland, did my own research, etc. Came into contact um, with the founder of the Oxford Initiative Projects, which is GWNP, Global Women's Narratives Project. Um, And her name is Dr. Um, LBJ, Lynn Boyd Judson. And she is amazing. And she was like, this is once again coincidence because we do a yearly conference in Oxford where you stay there a week and you um, go through um, lectures on how to handle trauma, especially in women who have been through many global conflicts. Um, And also afterwards you have an experiential trip for a week in um, the destination of your choosing. So at the time it was between Greece, which had the refugee crisis, or it was between Northern Ireland where you got to interview women who were um, on the Irish Republican side um, in the army, so known as the IRA. And so for me, I was like, this is insane because like, this is where my, um, you know, my research is literally based on. And so sadly, pandemic came in, they canceled the conference I was going to go on. And then recently, past summer in July, I think the same dates as today. So literally, I was over there. I um, got to go on the um, to the Oxford conference and then the experiential trip to Northern Ireland. It was amazing. And so what I do now through this organization is that I'm editor of publication. So um, we are reviving our um, website once again. And once that's done, I will start with newsletters on um, the different work that we're doing across the world. So a lot of um, projects are being taken over by some of my teammates. So we have stories from India. We have stories from certain parts of Africa. We have stories from Mexico. We have stories um, from the U.S. And so what we do is we interview individuals based on our research project. And then um, we type it all out. And sometimes we have to translate it if it's in a different language. And then from there, we curate their stories until they're happy with that narrative. And then we post them online so anyone can see it. And then there's photos included um, if they choose not to remain anonymous. Um, And it's just as a way for 
everyone who enters the website to know that, you know, global conflicts, you know, are still currently a thing. um, And maybe we don't have to experience them, but we have to have that empathy and that awareness um, to learn about what's going on around us. And usually that's from a female perspective, from um, that female gaze that sometimes we tend to overlook. And so my project is I work um, in Mexico, um, specifically in Mexico City, um, with women who either have seen um, situations of femicide, um, are facing gendered violence, and also um, just what it means to be a contemporary woman living in Mexico, which is still very male-dominated and very much chauvinism is in its place and it's still very sexist and racist so um i work on getting their narratives um and seeing what it means to be a woman um in mexico city and so i think hopefully that project will carry on to what i continue to do um but that's something that i'm working on and i truly believe um in gaining justice for all these women who we've lost in mexico because they have been victims of femicide, but also all these women we can gain by um, giving them the opportunity to speak up about what they're facing um, and sometimes to, you know, just be very open about what they're experiencing and, um, you know, sometimes putting up a fight against um, their abuser. And so I, I truly believe in, in this project and I hope to continue doing so um, for another few years and from there on out you know hopefully branching out the the project to extend to other surrounding countries or surrounding areas around the world what an absolutely incredible initiative props for getting involved with something like this i think that it's so needed and insanely important for people to be able to hear these stories it feels so seamless how all of these things that you're telling me, every single initiative that you're working on, your current job, the books that you're writing, your intent to become a lawyer, they all fit together so perfectly. And it really feels like the trajectory that you're on, it seems incredibly perfect for you. And I know that we've only, you know, had this conversation right now. I did know Mel before this interview, but I'm getting to know you even more on a deeper level. And I'm just so incredibly impressed by everything that you've said today. And it just, it inspires me. And I think it's going to inspire a lot of people listening to this as well. For that newsletter, I know that you said you guys are revamping it right now. Mm-hmm. But do you, guys, do you have kind of a timeline of when that's going to be up again? And then how people can subscribe to it if they want to once it yeah. is back up? So I think, right once again, no timeline. But I think from what we've talked about, it's probably going to be nine months to a year. We're completely changing everything. The website, we want it to be more... Um, interactive. Um, We want it to be a little bit more personal, more intimate. Um, So it's a lot right now. We're barely, you know, starting up with like the color palette and everything and just (laughs) making sure it all looks good. But um, I know your expertise, though, your expertise. And I think a lot of um, my teammates are also uh, we want to have enough stories to post on there. So a lot of it, as much as we want to have a timeline for it, the one thing is um, a lot of these interviews, once again, they have to be, if they're in a different language, they have to translate it. It goes through an editing process as well. I believe like 10 editors look at it before it can be reached at a final level. And then from there, our um, 
founder has to approve of it. And then we have someone that works in IT and that, you know, is posting it and making sure it looks good um, in previews. And apart from that, we also have to continue si- um, getting a lot of like um, making sure we have like consent forms signed and making sure that everything's in place. So before we can actually go about it, we have to reach that. So my aim is like nine months to a year, hopefully. Um but I know it's a lot of a waiting game just because so many people have um, stories that they're editing at the moment. So it's exciting because even though my project is more linked to Mexico, a lot of the other projects are from all over and based on so many different, you know, experiences and global conflicts. So there's a lot going on there. I think we do have our website is still running. Um, it is, uh, through Squarespace and then it's GWNP and then it's called Oxford global ethics.org. Um, and then there's a women's narratives, um, tab that you can click on and it's still there, but right now it's very unfinished. Okay, perfect. Well, excited that it's being worked on. I'm excited to subscribe to the newsletter once it's all ready to go. I'm very excited. If you had one piece of advice that you would like to leave somebody with that's either going into law school currently, that's going to be tackling a lot of different things, that wants to enter the publishing world or become an author, I know that's a huge umbrella, but what's one piece of advice that you would give somebody if they were going to be stepping into Mel's life? The one thing that I always tell people Um, that catches them by surprise is to let go. And what I mean by that is, for instance, as editor, I work on so many projects and a lot of the projects that once they're out in the world, they're truthfully my babies. Like I see them, I get so excited to see them in store, you know, Barnes and Noble, Target, you name it. Um, But I think you can, you have to let go in order for them to be out in the world. And I think, it's so hard sometimes to let go because you're like, this project was so endearing to me. It's not perfect. You know, you always want it at 110%. And sometimes you just have to learn to let go. And I think that can apply to anything that you do, whether it's editing, whether it's publishing, whether it's writing, you know, letting go of what we know to be our babies, whether it's a writing piece, whether it's a book. And I think that same thing can be um, for law school students. Like, we put immense pressure on ourselves. And sometimes, you know, with me, I can say the LSAT scores that I've gotten, I always like am stuck on them. And I think it comes at a time where like, we have to learn to let go. And sometimes it by letting go, we get to different positions, um, different parts in our life. And I think that's, you know, that's how you know, you're making progress by letting go of things that you love and nurture but you know that they deserve to be out in the world um and you have no control over it anymore so that takes off that pressure that weight and so letting go is probably the the best call that you can do um and just taking care of your mental health because nothing is worth putting anything at risk um in terms of your mental health That's fantastic advice. And you may have the same answer to this last question that I'm going to ask you, Mm -hmm. because let go could also be a quote. But I ask everybody (laughs) on this podcast when they come on, if there's a quote that you live by, a phrase, anything like that, that you stick to, that just influences your life. Do you have anything? Oh, gosh. Um, 
I think oh, this is this is such a hard question. I'm I I of all of them. I'm like this stumped me. Um, you can think about like, it. You can think about it. Think back to books. You know, anything like that. Maybe it's something from one of your books. It could be anything. Oh gosh. Yeah, I think I'll do it from one of my books. I think in Amor de Colores, we we definitely say that like love is all around us, but love is in us, and like we love everything in you and me and around us. And I think we have to have like, as much as I say, like, don't be that romantic person when it comes to writing and editing and within the industry, I think at the same time, you have to love everything that you do. It may not be, you know, you're not perfect. And I think sometimes we put a lot of pressure when we make mistakes. I know I do. And I've made a lot of mistakes in my career, like just little things. I publish books with errors and stuff. And, you know, sometimes we are so hard on ourselves, but I think love everything that you do and do everything that you love. Because at the end of the day, um, you know, life is too short and you're not going to remember that mistake you made two years ago. Like might as well just remember what is out there and that what you've given to your community and, you know, I hope that, you know, once I'm older, maybe retired, what people remember of me is that, you know, she gave back to her community in any way that she could. And, you know, she created books meant for her community, but also for anyone that wanted to pick them up. And end of the day, that that's all you should be remembered by, that you put so much passion in, in what you love to do and that what you hope to continue doing until you're old and wrinkly. Um, and so <laughs> that is my goal. So love what you do and do what you love. That is a fantastic quote. I think a great message to leave everybody on. And also I will tell you right now that anybody listening to this podcast right now, they will leave knowing that you already have given back to your community. Thank you're already you. doing so many things that are so influential and impactful. So thank you for all the work that you've done thus far. I'm excited to see all the work that you're going to do in the future. It's only beginning. And thank, thank you so you. much for coming on the podcast. This has been such an incredible conversation. Thank you so much, Emma. It was a pleasure being here. And um, as always, if anyone ever has questions, you know, um, needs any advice, I am more than happy um, to answer that. I do have Instagram at M-E-L-B-E-L-L-N-Y-C. Um, you know, let me know. I'm so happy to guide you to every, wherever you want to be. And I'm always here to um, offer a helping hand for those trying to get into the industry. Um, it's a tough one. It's cutthroat. But um the more the merrier. And I hope you make it your home. So thank you so much, Emma. Reach out to her guys. That's amazing that she just gave you that ability to do that. That's unheard of in a lot of professional settings. So reach out to her, use your resources. Where else can they find your work? Can you just let them know if they want to see your books, anything like that? Yes. So if you go to littlelibros.com, so L-I-L-L-I-B-R-O-S, um, I do have my books for sale, Amor de Colores and JS for Hanukkah. Um, I also do a lot of events throughout the year. So book signings, meet and greets, and that can be found on an Instagram page for Little Libros. Um, and I do have a website coming out with my portfolio, but you can always 
link with me on LinkedIn. Um, it's Melanie Romero 27. Um, and I'm always also happy to answer any questions you may have. Um, and I'm always happy to guide you through anything that you need. Uh, and so, like Emma said, use your resources. Um, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Excuse My Reach. As always, you can find us on all major streaming platforms. Like, download, share with your friends. Be kind to those around you. And don't be afraid to reach a little higher. Yay! Thank you so much. That was so amazing. (laughs) 